Well, good morning again. You keep seeing me this morning. Keep popping up. I'm sorry. Well, uh, we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Mark, and I keep telling you that the last half of Mark is Jesus' trip to Jerusalem in the last week there, but today we get to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus has been working his way down from the northern part of Israel, Galilee, down the Jordan River, and up the mountain road to Jerusalem itself, and that's where we pick up this morning. So Mark 11, starting at verse 1. Now when, he drew near, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks, everyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, God's word is where we learn about who we are and who he is, and most importantly, what he has done for us. So let's pray that we can understand. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your word. We pray that we would have the scales lifted from our eyes, that we might see what you are doing And that our hearts might be strengthened. That our love might be inflamed for you. And our will solidified on what we're called to do. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you know who Thomas Kincaid was? Uh, He was a painter. You would know him because he had a bunch of galleries and malls back in the 90s. Um, He kind of mass-produced all these paintings uh, and sold them. And he was kind of, I mean, he he claimed to be a Christian. He was kind of a darling among evangelicals, and he called himself the painter of light. And it was like everything in his paintings was sort of backlit. Um. He said that he tried to paint a world in which there had been no fall, into which evil had not entered. Uh, His own story is kind of weird, and uh, there's lots of weird stuff that popped up about him uh, in his later years and and after he died, but uh, a painting that is supposed to be a world in which there is no evil is telling a story. 
about the way the world is, or at least the way the world that we want is. Little wonder that these are obviously very sentimental looking paintings. Everything's sort of like an English cottage with a big English garden out in the back. Um, well, in one of those, you know, real gifts of the internet a few years ago, uh, you know, there's all these horrible things about the internet. <laughs> but in one of the real gifts of the internet, somebody decided that they could digitally edit a bunch of, a bunch of Thomas Kincaid paintings uh, to have the imperial forces from Star Wars storming the scene of each of these paintings. So there's one where, you know, there's this kind of like all these clouds and kind of these beautiful colors of the sunset. And then there's the Imperial Star Destroyer emerging from the clouds. And another one where kind of through the mist in the background, you see the, uh, the, the, the adats, the walking tank thing is you know, starting to come into another painting. Uh, these brilliantly told a very different story about the way the world is. I mean, it's funny, but of course, plays off the sentimentality of those paintings and the fact that they don't really tell you the way the world is. They tell you something you want to believe about the world, but not the way that the world really is. We've been talking in this series through Mark about how the people of Israel that Jesus came to that Jesus was one of, had misunderstood the story all along. And that really, in many ways, comes to a head in this story right here. What they had wanted Messiah to be, what they had thought he would be, in many ways they had all this kind of biblical material about, but they had cast the story in a different light. And one of the, so what we see this morning is that Jesus picks up the story and moves it forward. And we see that the crowd misses it. So Jesus moves the story forward in a way that's kind of uh, very mundane. Uh, we hear at the beginning Jesus is, is, is climbing this last ridge over, uh, over Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. And there's a couple little towns, little villages there that are mentioned here, Bethany, Bethphage. Jesus will spend this whole week going back to Bethany in the evenings. It's, it's where his Airbnb was. Uh, on, the, uh, on this other ridge, uh, of course, there is a garden that faces Jerusalem on the west side of that ridge called Gethsemane, where they'll arrest Jesus by, by Thursday night. But Jesus is coming over this, and then what... What's, what unfolds in the first six verses, uh, Justin, Justin and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago as we were sort of doing our planning out, and we're kind of scratching our heads about this donkey acquisition subplot that takes up a lot of room, a lot of space in the midst of, I don't, did you notice that? It's kind of uncharacteristic of the Gospels that there's all this detail about the logistics of acquiring this donkey. Why do we care? You know, why, why spend so much time on that? I mean, on the one hand, of course, you know, Jesus is speaking as a prophet, telling them where they can find it. And that's all, you know, that's impressive. But Jesus has done a lot of that at this point. Um, 
Instead, what we see, I think the more important point here, I mean, that's obviously true and important, but the, the thing that's more salient here is that Jesus is intentionally taking on the persona of the Messiah. He is intentionally making choices to communicate that he is the son of David, that he is the one they were expecting. So uh, there's a couple of places where in 2 Samuel, there's a, there's a long story uh, near the end of 2 Samuel about one of David's children who started a coup. And David ends up going this same road out on a donkey, running away, and then when his son is defeated, comes back in to Jerusalem riding a donkey. Uh, at the beginning of 1 Kings, when David is really old, and his, and his other sons are starting to argue about who's going to take over the throne, when David decides it's going to be Absalom, or I'm sorry, not <laughs> that was the one who started the coup, when he decides it's going to be Solomon, he sends Solomon on his donkey to ride into Jerusalem. Now, of course, probably many people had ridden donkeys in and out of Jerusalem. I'm not saying that's... But what Matthew points out, and what is clearly in in their minds here, is that Zechariah the prophet had explicitly talked about this. So in Zechariah 9.9, we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So, look, other people had ridden donkeys in and out, but those people were not suspected of being the real Messiah. And Jesus, as he's riding towards Jerusalem and all these rumors started up, intentionally goes out of his way to say, like, okay, we know what this is supposed to look like. Go get me a donkey. I'll tell you where you can find it. This is where it is. And, and so all the expectations of Messiah, I mean, he's stoking the fire. He is pushing that story forward. I am the Messiah coming to Jerusalem, entering in. If you go on in Zechariah, if you go on with that, reading that passage in Zechariah 9, you read about the exiles of Israel returning, and then a few verses later you read this, then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine in his land. For great is his goodness and how great his beauty. All, everything's happening here. (laughs) Jesus is intentionally showing them that this is the end. I am Messiah coming into Jerusalem and the Lord's return will be with it. And also all the expectations of the king showing up, the exiles returning, God showing up. And if God is showing up, that means the restoration of Israel, the judgment day, and eventually the resurrection. It, it's the end of time. He's intentionally telling that story. And so, it's hard not to stop and reflect 
In fact, I think it's important to reflect on the apparent contradiction between the smallness of what actually happens here and the cosmic claims it has over us. I mean, we know that time didn't stop (laughs) that day, 2,000 years ago, when some poor carpenter who had become a religious figure entered Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, after all, even in that day, a small city on the edge of a vast empire. One of the most impressive, influential empires that's ever existed in the world. It was just kind of on the outskirts of that. Jesus never led an army. Jesus never even, as far as we know, wrote anything down. I'm not saying he couldn't write, but (laughs) he didn't leave some sort of lasting record. It was only his followers that did. Jesus was born in obscurity and died a shameful death. But what he claimed he was doing was giving his life as a ransom for many. And what he was doing was bringing about the return of the Lord. What he he claimed was that he was going to bring about the end of all things. But a resurrection did happen. I mean, that's, that's the key, isn't it? That's what changed everything. Was that, in fact... Didn't judgment happen on the cross? If you're a Christian, that was your judgment day. Judgment started then. And resurrection started then. Well, three days later. (laughs) Resurrection began. The end has already, in other words, begun. Jesus did bring about the end. That's why his followers started writing down these stories, right? To retell the story. Because it wasn't just some guy with no background and no name who died a no-name death. This was somebody that had done something profound. And that is really the heart of you know, it's a thing that we kind of forget as Christians. It's the thing, maybe if you're not a Christian, that's hard to get your head around, is that the resurrection changed everything. There were other would-be messiahs that came and went around Jesus' time. They all died and are largely forgotten. Certainly nobody follows them anymore. Certainly nobody still believes that they're around. And definitely nobody believes they brought in the end of all things. Except for Jesus. Because if somebody, had, somebody rises from the dead, if evil and death don't work the way that we thought they do anymore, if they begin to work backwards, we have to stop and think, well, maybe what Jesus said was right. Maybe his life really was a ransom for many. Maybe his life really does bring about the end. This is what he kept saying. There, 
This irony is written into what is going on here in this scene, is the people are celebrating, but Jesus has been saying all along, when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, killed, and then I'll rise again. And I don't think anybody in the crowd understood that. They missed the story. Uh, notice what they're doing. Uh, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's strange because on the one hand, it's appropriate. He is the son of David returned. The celebration on the one hand should happen. But they're not celebrating what they think they're <laughs> celebrating. Jesus isn't going to do what they think they want. And he gets this big royal reception in verses 7 through 10. You get all this stuff, right? People are throwing down their coats like it's some kind of makeshift red carpet for Jesus to, to ride in on. Uh, they're putting down palm branches, which was a royal symbol in Israel. So they're, they're putting down palm branches. And then they start singing out of Psalm 118. Hosanna, which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're singing right out. And then they, if that's not enough, in verse 10, they add to it. They riff on <laughs> verse 26 of Psalm 118. In verse 10, they say, they add to it with, uh, blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they, they're, they're all bought into this Messiah. They believe that it's moving forward. This is happening. All their expectations are going to be realized. They are finally going to have their king. But of course, what we've been saying over and over and over again is that they want military might. They want to overthrow Rome. They want, in other words, all the external enemies of Israel to be defeated, but have forgotten that they have internal enemies as well. They have forgotten, you see, they remember Zechariah 9, <laughs> but they've forgotten the rest of Zechariah. They, they, they were telling the story in a way that highlighted the return of the Lord to destroy the, the pretensions of the nations, to destroy those that were outside, but they had forgotten that, in fact, the bulk of the prophetic literature was about the sin of Israel. That's why it's so hard to read a lot of the prophets if you've ever tried to do it. You know, Jeremiah, whoo. There's some highlights in Jeremiah, but we like to skip most of it. It's just like, oh man. They had forgotten that the contrast, that sin and evil didn't exist in some contrast between what was outside of Israel and what was inside Israel, but that evil cut through outside and in. They didn't realize that what the king needed to do was also fix Israel from the inside as well. And when Jesus prioritizes that, well, within five days, this crowd has other plans for him. Instead of singing, Hosanna, save us, instead of blessing his name, they cry, crucify him. All it takes is five days for Jesus to burn all his goodwill with this crowd. 
And that's an interesting subplot in the, you know, the next five or so chapters, is what is going on with this crowd? I mean, they're largely kind of out of frame in the way the stories are told, but we hear about them here and we hear about them in chapter 15. Because, and, and I think the answer is obvious, because they thought Jesus was supposed to be a certain kind of king. And when Jesus is saying, no, 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 you've misunderstood what is going on. You've misunderstood the problem. They couldn't stand it. They would not listen to the story told the right way. They refused it. Because it's just worth saying, right, that they thought about it in terms of their power rather than the power of God. We, of course, uh, think, we talk a lot about power, actually, in the modern world. There's deep roots to this, of course. I mean, people have been obsessed with power, you know, from time immemorial, right? Um, But we thought a lot more about it over the last few centuries I mean, there were, of course, people who, writ, who wrote scandalous books like Machiavelli. Um, but, you know, really the, the father of thinking this way is Friedrich Nietzsche. And you probably read him in a, maybe an intro philosophy class uh, in college. Um, maybe some of you have read more of, of him. But this, you know, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's insight, if you can call it that, is that power, as he, as he talks about it, is ultimately what gives someone the right to define good and evil. And in fact, he very famously uh, despised Christianity because Christianity undercut that narrative. That it was not power that simply gave you the right to define good and evil. And of course, he tells a story which is not actually historically accurate, but it does get to what is a true contrast between the way of the world and the way of the gospel. It is power that is subverted by sacrifice, by sacrificial love. And it's strange, a host of 20th and now 21st century thinkers have taken up his version of power, one that sees power as a limited resource that we need to squabble over. And you know you're thinking this way when we define our enemies primarily externally. When we resist thinking we are the problem. I'm not saying that there aren't external (laughs) problems. But when we think, well, we're not really the problem here. I'm not saying there are not situations where there that aren't one-sided. But that by and large, in most of our routines of life, we at least are bringing some of the problem with us. It also sees the possibilities, when you're thinking about power this way, the possibilities as being very limited. Because it is about maintaining control. 
You see this, of course, I mean, you know, obviously we see this in the political world, right? Uh, all over the place. Uh, we have to maintain our control because we wouldn't want to let those others have it. We wouldn't want to give an inch to them. But, of course, we, this, is, this is, happens just as much around the dinner table <laughs> as it does in our politics. I don't want to give an inch to that. And what is telling, though, ultimately, is that this kind of view of power is fragile. It looks very muscular. It is obsessed, after all, with control. But it means that those who don't do exactly what you want, when situations don't go exactly your way, you fall apart. I mean, maybe, maybe that says something about the fragility of our own politics, but it certainly says something about our own fragile sense of self. Now look, the Bible is, certainly acknowledges that abuse of power is pervasive in humanity. And I mean, it's story after story in the Bible where that is clear, where there are people that are abusing power. But the Bible also tells us that behind it all, the backdrop even of creation itself is a version of power, the power of God that is not threatened, that is not fragile, but that is generative, that is not threatened by the existence of others. I mean, think about the power of God, right? He can create humanity, all of us with our own individual wills, and God does not consider that a threat to his, his power, his will. He considers it a blessing to empower us in a certain way. He considers it a blessing to call forth life. God's not threatened by that. Even when it costs him, he's not threatened by it. Of course, we do all kinds of terrible things with our will. That's certainly true. But God is not threatened by it. Instead, the power of God gives life and blessing. It doesn't see itself as being a limited resource because, of course, it is unlimited. And isn't it a strange thing, then, that in Romans 5, Paul tells us that the love of God is being poured into our hearts by the Spirit. That what he's creating in us is a fountain that cannot be spent of love and concern. But this is the story that Israel doesn't want to see. This is the story that we don't want to see. Because it's just so much neater if I can just define people as other and the problem and myself and see myself as being the solution, being the one that's in the right. But the Bible teaches us to see, on the one hand, teaches us to be much wiser. It teaches us to see, on the one hand, that the threat is not merely out there, but it's also internal. But that the solution is more powerful than we think. 
I mean, you can see throughout the Bible that there are problems internally. Of course, it's everywhere in the Old Testament stories, but it's there clearly in the New Testament as well. This is really crystal clear throughout the New Testament. I mean, in Acts 20, when Paul is saying farewell to the elders in Ephesus, he warns them that wolves are rising up within their own ranks. In Galatians, he's concerned that the whole gospel has been lost by this church. You know what you never hear? You, you, you literally never hear in the New Testament is you got to watch out for that pagan threat from the outside. You never hear that, ever. Now, there is spiritual warfare. There are satanic forces at work. It's not saying there isn't such a thing as an external threat, but it's when it comes to people, it's us within the church that are the primary threat. It's, uh, it's us, of course, individually. And we'd rather be self-deceived that we're not the problem, but it's us, I mean, even as a church, we have our problems. Now, look, let's be so clear about this. The Bible doesn't teach us then self-loathing. It doesn't. I mean, I think some people in the church know, you know, feel the weight of their sin, but the Bible teaches us to be confident in God's love for us, in Christ's sufficiency for us, in the power of the Spirit at work in us. And any, try, any trying to deal with our sin that isn't resting on the Father's love and the grace of Jesus and the power of the Spirit is not, is not going to be a fruitful effort. That's what we're taught to rely on. But we should be convinced that we haven't arrived at the kingdom yet. That the Spirit still has more work to do in us. And we should beware of persons, we should beware of churches that claim to have it all figured out. That claim to have it all squared away. I really pray that we never become a church like that. I pray that I never become a minister like that. That has it all figured out. Because that's a bad path to be on. And more than, and more, look, confronting is more than not self-loathing. It is celebrating what God is doing. Because the principal marvel of the kingdom of God is not that we were sinners, but that Christ died for us. And the secondary marvel of that is his effectiveness as a king to change us. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is real and persistent and pervasive, and there is story after story after story of God changing people. And that's real. And so we do well to rehearse this story, to memorize it, to go back over it again and again and again. Not as, not, you know, I hope in not a way that's tedious, but in a way that's refreshing, that engages our imagination. You know, verse 11 is really curious here. Jesus enters Jerusalem. <laughs> Do you notice this? So it must be, it's late in the day when he gets 
gets there. So he goes up to the temple and he kind of looks around. All right, all right. He's thinking. He's coming back to the temple tomorrow. We'll get to that passage next week. He's gonna, and he's going to cause a ruckus in the temple. But he's, he's looking around. Okay. Coming up with his plan. He's thinking about what this story is. Reflecting on what he's supposed to be. What he's supposed to do. And it's, it's kind of ironic. I, I mean, I want, he must have been thinking about Psalm 118 in this moment. Uh, thinking about what the people were chanting. And the reason I say he must have is because he brings it up in the next chapter. He goes back to Psalm 118. And again, we'll get to this in a few weeks. But <laughs> he goes back to Psalm 118 and he says, uh, he says uh, oh, but that's about me. And the, but the verses he quotes are verses 10 to 11. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. He's thinking about himself as one who's been rejected or will be rejected. But in that rejection, he will become the foundation of a building that's unshakable, of a kingdom that has no end. And that's what we need to be reminded of. That's what we need to be reflecting on. See, our imaginations are so shaped by the political narratives around us. I mean, let's be honest. For those of you who are Christians, how much time did you spend reading articles this week about politics or listening to the news compared to how much time you spent in God's Word or in prayer? You can even add those together and, and try to see how it stacks up, right? Probably not. The ratio is probably not great. Right, we're listening. Those are the narratives that shape us. I mean, how much time did you spend thinking about uh, pandemic fears, things related to that? I mean, over this last year, how much time have you spent thinking and worrying about that? And how much time have you spent in prayer and in the Word? Right, the ratio doesn't look. It's not real flattering for us, is it? Um. I mean, maybe there's just stuff going on with you personally or your family, and those have felt all-consuming. And I'm not saying those aren't really important. I'm also not saying politics aren't important or the pandemic isn't important. But how much time have we spent in prayer and in the Word trying to remind ourselves of the story of Jesus that we're caught up into and that all of this stuff is just a subplot of, of God's great story of redemption and renewal. The theologian Kevin Van Hooser says, making disciples involves more, but not less, than informing minds or forming habits. It also involves transforming imaginations. That's what we need to be about, is filling our imagination with this story. Being, you know, and it's really, it's really quite simple. You know, the, when we talk about the means of grace, that can easily 
come across as like, this is the checklist of the things I need to be doing. I need to be reading the word. I need to be praying. I should take the sacraments when the church is going to offer them. Sorry, that was just a joke about us trying to manage a pandemic, you know. Um, and, uh, and I need to be in fellowship. Okay. Check, check, check. You know, like, and maybe you're a good checklist person, so you get to it every day because you like checking things off your list and getting credit for it. Uh, or maybe you're somebody who just hates that you have a checklist. I don't know what it is. But either way, it's so easy to make that uh, an item that we're supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to do this thing. And forget that what, the whole reason we're even called to do those is so that our imagination would be filled with the glory of God. That our hearts be energized by the love of God. That our desires would be for his kingdom. Would be for all the things that he wants. So that we wouldn't be caught up and tossed about by politics and pandemics and, and even the personal challenges that we face or our families face. That our lives would be seen through Jesus' lens, through the lens of the Father, so that we would not be caught by surprise, even in difficulty, but leaning on the love of the Father, being confident in the grace of Jesus, and knowing the power of the Spirit at work in us routinely. That's why we go back to those things over and over and over again. Not so you can check something off a list. But so that your imagination can be changed and filled with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you sent him because you love us. And we thank you that he has sent the Spirit because he loves us. And that the Spirit teaches us to give glory to Jesus and back to you. So that all might be prayer and praise. There are so many stories we are tempted to believe about who we are, about what the church is, that are lazy narratives, that are misleading. But we do know the gospel story, and it leads us through the cross, through the empty grave, and into your presence. Remind us of who we are. Remind us of what you are doing in this world. And not just in this world writ large, but even in our own hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.